0: Hi, we are Inspired Churches, and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspiredchurches.com.
1: Good morning, good morning. Glad to see everybody here. Wasn't that beautiful? Man, that gets me every time. Uh, and I'm excited because uh, when I was watching um, your beautiful baby, where are you guys? Oh, there you are. <laughs> uh, being dedicated, I couldn't help but think about my three daughters and their dedication. And, and uh, my, my oldest daughter is here this morning, and she is now 13. Uh, last Sunday, she turned a teenager and it felt like I just blinked my eyes and there she is and, uh, pray for me as I'm emotional about it and, uh, and she always laughs because every birthday I cry. And she goes, Dad, don't cry. But I'm like, oh, my babies. Uh, so, but anyway, glad you're here. Well, good morning, Inspire Church. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Roger, one of the pastors here at Inspire. Um, and I am just excited as uh, we are continuing uh, a series that we kicked off last week called Deconstructing, D." De- constructing. Um, I have made a determination, I guess. I've come to an epiphany um, that I believe that nutritionists are evil. (laughs) Now, if you are a nutritionist in the room... I'm talking to you. Uh, yeah, very, like, and, you know, so I had this discussion. I had to go into uh, the doctors the other day for something, and they're like, listen, stop by the nutritionist's office. So I did, and, you know, we're talking and stuff, and, and they're like, listen, you know, maybe you should try, like, a low-carb, you know, diet type of situation. And, and, and trust me, after a couple weeks, the cravings uh, will just go away. Like, they won't even be there as strong. Lies lies. That is evil. That is evil. That's not true. Like, you know, I'm driving by the donut shop, smell the donuts, and I am willing to jump out of my moving car. Like, that is a craving, you know? And then the whole low-carb thing, right? And so you go, okay, well, what can I eat? You know, low-carb. And they make, like, low-carb bread. Right, So I'm excited because I'm like, oh, score. Like I could still eat bread, low carb bread. So you buy this low carb bread and you go home and you open it up. You get excited for it, you know, and I'm just ready to eat this thing. So I don't do anything to it. I'm just ready to put it in my mouth and and it was uh, horrible. I couldn't even bite. it. I felt like it was still wrapped. You know what I mean? (laughs) I'm like, what is this? And then I'm like, let's put butter on it. You put butter on it, the butter just slides right off. You know? And I'm like, do they scotch guard this thing in the factory before they send it out? It's horrible. And so I'm just like, this nutritionist is evil. This is evil, evil, right? Just lies all the way through. And I just couldn't believe it. You know what else I think is evil? Like, have you ever, like, driven up to a drive through and you go to the second window to get your food and there's, like, these posts there? So you can't bring your car, like, close enough to the window. You know, and so you roll down your window and you're wanting the person to reach in to bring you the food, but they can't reach. And you know, I'm not about to reach, because I'm like, I've already done enough, I pulled up, you know what I mean? <laughs> evil, because now the food's just there in front of you. Can't reach it, can't get it, and I have to get out of my car, evil. Whoever thought about that, I think it was evil, right? Or juicing, have you guys ever juiced, right? I remember the doctor said, well, maybe you should juice, like the word is a verb or something. You know? Juice. And I'm not very good at it, you know? After, like, day two, I was, like, juicing a ham. And I was just like, it, let me just say this. If you've drinking ham juice and, like, your left arm goes numb, just give it an hour. It'll come back. Don't <laughs> worry about it. You know? So, you know, you're putting bacon and everything else in it, all that healthy stuff to juice it, and it's, you know, it lies. It's just, it's all evil. All evil. Uh, this morning... Uh, as we are talking about deconstruction, uh, we are actually talking about evil. Evil and suffering, to be exact. Um, And really, deconstruction is those that are sort of unpacking, rethinking, reexamining their belief system. And the problem is, is is not the unpacking, not the rethinking, not the reexamining, But the problem is, is as people who are deconstructing their faith are going through this process, that many times they are going through it because they've been hurt. Many times they are going through this because they've experienced a toxic church. Or many times they're going through this because there are certain theological, doctrinal uh, questions that they just can't seem to get answered. That they wrestle with. And so because they are deconstructing it's not that the deconstruction is bad in fact there is as pastor phil taught us last sunday there is a good side to deconstructing but the problem is is when that deconstructing leads you to walk away from jesus christ and often because there wasn't anybody in your circle there wasn't anybody as you were processing to maybe answer some of the questions That you were wrestling with. And some of you guys know people exactly in that position who once went to church, who who once served the Lord and they have walked away for various reasons. And so what we're doing in this series is we are tackling some of those wrestling issues. And last week, Pastor Phil kicked us off by talking about the Bible and can it be trusted and its authority and how did it come together and how did we even get this thing called the Bible? And so if you missed it, I encourage you to check out the YouTube page or podcast and uh, hopefully you'll find that it was equipping for you. This morning, we're wrestling with suffering and evil. So what I thought I would do is uh, kind of unpack this uh, sermon or teaching uh, in a different way. Instead of having like three points and a prayer, uh, what I thought I would do is I would just go through a series of questions that we tend to wrestle with when it comes to this topic. Is that okay with you guys? Yeah. We'll, just, we'll just do it that way, right? But before that, uh, how this whole sort of argument of suffering and evil goes is something like this one, if God allows evil and suffering to continue because he cannot stop it, then he might be good, but he's not all powerful. Okay? So, that's number one. If God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be good, but he's not all powerful. On the other hand, if God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be I'm sorry, but he can stop it, but he won't, then he might be all-powerful, but he's not good. Right? So, if God God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be all-good, but he's not all-powerful. If God allows evil and suffering to continue um, because he can stop it, but he won't, then he's all-powerful, but he's not all-good. Either way... The good, all-powerful, all-loving God of the Bible couldn't exist. That's how the argument goes, right? Now, on the surface, that seems like a pretty formidable argument. But actually, if you bring that statement to its logical conclusion, you'll find that it ends up being meaningless, Now, I understand that when we're talking about suffering and evil, that this subject tends to be less rational, less logical, and very much emotional and extremely personal. And so as a pastor, when you go to, when I go to talk to an individual about this, it's hard because you want to be able to really speak to both sides of the same coin. And so this morning, as we go through the questions, I'm going to start with some of the more sort of logical, logical, philosophical sides of the topic of evil and suffering, and then I'll go to the more personal, emotional side of evil and suffering. All right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father. I pray that you will be the one that moves our hearts, illuminates the text, and helps us to understand as we wrestle with uh, something that I believe um, can very much be a pain point in the Christian faith. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 through 12, and it reads like this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds and trials. Anybody say amen to that? That's me, yep. These have come so far, uh, these have come so that way your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though re- uh, refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you may not see him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Some of you might be like, oh, I wrestled with that one. Right? Said amen to the first one. This verse is a little, hoof, oh, maybe. Right? For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searching intently and with great care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointed when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Now for those of you like, what did all that mean? We'll unpack it. Okay. But this is what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go through a few questions, okay? And I'll just kind of run through them really quick. First question is, doesn't evil and suffering prove that God does not exist? Second question, couldn't God just have gotten rid of evil? Right? Right. Right. How about this one? Couldn't God have just created a world without evil and suffering? Number four, why does God allow evil and suffering? And then number five, how do we deal with evil and suffering? Now, do you feel like those are fair questions? Do you feel like those kind of cover, you know, the the general topic of evil and suffering? So, again, I'm not going to necessarily have you point, you know, one and da-da-da-da, but we're just going to go and we're going to answer these questions. So, let's answer the first one. I felt like I kind of, like, should have had a stool up here with, like, a little table and, you know, some coffee or something, but whatever. Um... But question number one, doesn't evil and suffering prove that God does not exist, right? Now, listen, when we experience horrendous suffering and a catastrophe, one of the ways that we respond to it is sometimes we back off or even abandon our belief in God, right? When we experience something, the word today is traumatic, right? Right? We often will back off, and maybe, maybe for some, you don't back off totally. You're not like, you know, uh, you know, running, you know, the atheist community in your city type of thing, right? But maybe it starts off where you're disconnected a little bit. Worship coming into worship doesn't feel um, the same anymore. You find yourself busying yourself with other things and not maybe attending a connect group or, you, you know, what I'm saying. Sometimes these things start off small. They're, 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 they might not necessarily just hit you one day and you're just like not going to church anymore. But eventually, you, you feel sort of this disconnection. And it's perfectly natural, actually. A lot of people do that. And when these horrible things happen to us, we back off, right? We, we take a couple step backs, and, and, and in some ways, you should, right? I mean, isn't that natural? Like, whoa, wait a second. What's happening here? Let me evaluate the situation. Now, notice when Peter says in verse 6 and 7, let me just kind of pull out a few things, right? He says this, that you had to suffer trials and grief of all kinds, so that way your faith can result in glory and honor, right? And he says that the pain and the suffering that you're going through now, it doesn't have to weaken or destroy your faith, but it can actually strengthen your faith, right? In other words, watch this, what Paul is saying is your deconstruction, as you're deconstructing, your deconstruction shouldn't lead to a destruction, but your faith, a destruction of your faith, but a restructuring of it. So your deconstruction doesn't have to lead to a total destruction of your faith, but rather as you are deconstructing, as you are wrestling, as you are asking, as you are seeking, as you're saying, I don't understand what's going on, that, that when all of that is done, that it should actually cause you to, to, to rebuild your faith in Jesus Christ. You say, Well, how does that happen? Right? And we'll get to that in a minute as we kind of are facing this topic about, Well, doesn't evil prove? that God doesn't exist. And and, and so let me just put it this way. Um, If you are looking at all of the different worldviews, all the different ways of of understanding the world, whether it's naturalism, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, Islam, whatever, New Age spiritualism, whatever you want to call it, title it, maybe you don't have any sort of title of it, but whatever kind of worldview you're looking at, really the question is this, is that there is no other place that you can go to that will properly uh, be able to handle the weight of evil and suffering as Christianity. Okay? Aban- in other words, abandoning your faith in God doesn't help. Now, the question of evil and suffering and how can a good God and evil exist. Now, that is a thorny question. Yeah. Right? Right? But if you take God out of the equation, then the question that you're asking is meaningless. You see that? In other words, uh, to take God out of the equation only means that now you have a bigger problem with trying to answer how evil and suffering exist and why it matters and what's the purpose and how do I deal with it. It actually complicates it. The only reason the question is tricky the only reason the question is thorny is if you leave God in the equation. Take God out, then the question of evil doesn't even make sense because how do you even have a standard to determine what evil is besides your own personal opinion and preference? And then why should your personal opinion and preference preference uh, be superior to the person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you? You see? Uh, Dostoevsky who is a was a great uh, therapist, said this, and he specialized in like the analysis of pathological states of mind. He wrote this great psychologist, and he said, "If God did not exist, everything is permitted. Everything's permitted." If God does not exist, we neither have behind us nor before us a luminous realm of values, nor any means of justification of any behavior whatsoever. Do do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, listen, when you ask the question, well, wait a minute, doesn't evil prove that God does not exist? What, what, What you're actually saying is, well, can't I just take, because there's such thing as evil, then that means there can't be such thing as God. But if you take God out, then there isn't such thing as evil. Do you see that? Because, because then on, on what basis do you know what's wrong or unjust besides just personal feelings? As Richard Dawkins says, it's just your DNA. And he says DNA neither knows nor cares. And he says we just dance to DNA's music. In other words, what he's saying is to the person that is a terrorist, a liar, a murderer, a raper, a, a, a rapist, somebody that uh, lies, somebody that steals, somebody that's just mean or rude, people who are greedy, selfish, whatever you want. He says all of us, when we when we do these things, we're just dancing to our own DNA. Right. The same as when a lion kills its prey. It didn't murder the prey. It's just dancing to its DNA. It's Not doing anything necessarily wrong, you see. So if you don't believe in God, then suffering and evil is actually a bigger problem that you deal with because now you have to explain how suffering isn't real. <laughs> Try explaining that away. Right? My point is this, get rid of your belief in God to handle evil and suffering will not help. It won't help. Chesterton puts it powerfully when he says this, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him, but in heaven's name to what? When Jesus asked the 12 disciples that were closest to him whether they too would desert him with the rest of the disciples, Peter replied and said, well, Lord, who will we go to? To whom shall we go? Where can we go for the answer? And the reality is is that there is no other worldview, whether we're talking like imminent or whether we're talking transcendent, that brings together such a coherent set of answers as the biblical writers do on the issue of pain and suffering. Listen to Habakkuk and how he raises these questions. He says, how long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you don't Listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry, but you don't come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence, right? I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. How many of you guys ever thought just like Habakkuk did? Right? Now what's interesting is when you read the book of Habakkuk, you realize that what God does is he gives answers to God in distinction to atheism, to his eventuality of working things out in distinction to theism, and then the eternity of his perspective in distinction to pantheism. In other words, God shows how God is, God acts, and God redeems. Go and read the book. Yeah. And at the end of it all, Habakkuk says, I shall rejoice in God, my Savior. Yeah. So he's asking all these profound, wrestling, deep, uh, connected questions of pain and suffering. And at the end of it all, he says, I can rejoice in God, my Savior. Yeah. You say, doesn't? But, but, but are you answering the question, Pastor Roger? Does, doesn't evil prove That a good God doesn't exist. I remember hearing an apologist say this. When you ask the question, does evil prove that God does not exist? Then are you not suggesting, assuming, implying that there is such thing as evil? You are, right? Yes? Yes? Otherwise, why would you ask the question? Right? And if the answer is yes, you are saying there is such thing as evil, then are you also not saying that then there is such thing as good? You're assuming there's such thing as good, right? Yeah, of course. Yes. And if, you're, and if you are saying that there is such thing as good and there is such thing as evil, then you have to be saying there is some sort of moral law that exists, some, some law inside of your consciousness, your heart, that lets you differentiate between this is good and this is bad. Right? Yeah. Some sort of law, some sort of rule. That has to be there. Otherwise, how are you going to differentiate? Yeah. But, but if there's a moral law, then you have to insert a moral law giver. But that's what you're trying to disprove and not prove, you see. In other words, pointing to the reality of evil, pointing to the reality of suffering, doesn't point away from God's existence, but points to his existence. Yeah. Do, do you see that? You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Why do I have to posit some sort of moral law giver? Why can't I say, yes, there's some sort of moral law that says this is good. This is how we differentiate between evil and, and right. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you see what I'm saying? Isn't, isn't that true? right? I mean, you know, if, if, if you walk out into the parking lot and you, so, you see somebody take a three-year-old and put him in the middle of the parking lot and take his car and back up and run over and back up and run over and back up and run over, there's something in you that lets you know that's not right. There's a moral law that lets you know, okay, wait a minute, is this good or is this bad, right? And it, it helps you differentiate. Well, why do I have to posit a moral law giver? Why can't there just be a moral law? Well, the reason why is this. Because every time the problem of evil is raised, it is either raised by a person or about a person. Whenever the the problem of evil is raised, it's either raised by a person or about a person. Which means that you are then assuming that persons have intrinsic value, have intrinsic worth. Otherwise, the question's mute, right? Right? In other words, otherwise you can't ask it because you don't have value or who you're asking it about doesn't have value. Either one. So you're asking because you're raising up the question of evil because you are assuming there's intrinsic worth and value in the person. And that assumption cannot be made by a random accidental universe with no primary mind and no being as a creator. You can't get to the assumption that every person has value without that. It's impossible. Because if you have a random collection of atoms, right, then how do we attribute essential worth to humanity? So the moral law that humanity has and needs has to be given by a moral law giver that's outside of humanity, not within. So does... The reality of evil and suffering prove that God does not exist? The answer is no. Okay, that's the first question. Okay, next question. I know this isn't flowing like a regular sermon. I'm sorry, guys. Maybe, you know. If you're visiting for the first time, just know this isn't how we normally do things. Okay, question two. And I'm actually going to combine these questions because they're, they're two different ways of asking kind of the same question. Couldn't God just got rid of evil or couldn't God have just created a world without evil? All right? How you got, that's a fair question? Okay, let me just say this. If the supreme ethic that God has given to us is love, which I think everybody in this room would agree, that if the supreme ethic, that the supreme ethic is love right? That's the supreme ethic. Now, listen, I know this is a lot. So if you, I'm I'm serious about this. If you want to grab some coffee or talk about it, call me, let's, let's meet up. We can break some of this down. But if the supreme ethic is love, if that is the peak of all intellectual and emotional alignment, right? Then you cannot have love without intrinsically weaving into it the freedom of the will, Now listen, and I'm going to say a little insider verbiage here, right? But whether you're Calvinist, Arminian, Molinist, however you look at will, freedom, all three schools of thought agree that there is such thing as free will in some context. None of those schools get rid of it, okay? Just to answer that for those who are maybe astute in those ways of thinking. The point is, is that if you have love then you have to weave into it freedom right and so if you're saying well couldn't god just got rid of evil couldn't couldn't god have just created a world without evil then what you're asking for i guess is some sort of mechanically compelled system where you can comply where everyone can comply like robots right we can comply but 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 you can't love because love has to be done freely you see and so if love is a supreme ethic and freedom is indispensable to love, then God, and God's supreme will is that you would love him and you would love your neighbors, right? Yeah. Then for him to create such a world where that freedom is violated and to stop everything bad from ever happening or to create a world where there is no evil, then what you are asking is a very different entity from humanity. In other words, you're asking God to get rid of you. You see. And, and you think that, that him stopping evil and protecting you every time, it, that, that him doing that is somehow, is somehow really protecting you. But in reality, what you're actually asking is, the, is for the greatest denial of your ability to choose love to be taken. That's what you're asking. You're asking for you to be denied that. Your choice to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And you're asking for that to be taken. See, when, you, when, when love is the supreme ethic and freedom to choose that love, uh, then what that means is all these other contingencies come in. So you're wanting some sort of compliance and some sort of mechanical robotic response. If that's what you're wanting, then your question self-destructs. See, because you're asking the question because you're free to ask it. And you're free to ask it because you're free to choose to love or not to love. But what you are asking for is for a world where freedom doesn't exist. And so you you might say, is is this really the best? Like, God, is this the best you could do? Like, really? Is this the best? I mean, I'm not God, and I think I could do better. Have you heard that? Right? I'm not God. I think I do better. Um, Well, check this out. Theologian Norman Geisler puts it this way. He says, the theist does not have to claim that our present world is the best of all possible worlds. But it is the best way to the best of all possible worlds. This is the best way to get to the best of all possible worlds. Okay, number Number three. Next question. Well, why does God allow evil and suffering? Why does he allow it? Right? You say, okay, he didn't create a world. He, okay, fine. You know. But, but, but why does he allow certain evil and suffering to take place? Well, let's take that question and let's apply that question to the cross. Can we do that? Can we take this question, this big question, and take it to the cross and say, God, why are you allowing evil and suffering to continue? And, and, and here's the crazy thing about this, about this topic, about evil and suffering, is it's almost like a tapestry where you have to pull together, weave together threads, all these threads to be able to make uh, this sort of clear picture on what it is that is happening In our world. And if you were to pull any of those threads apart and separate it, you could really unravel the whole tapestry. And so, in order for any of this to make sense, you have to say, okay, are these various ways of answering this question coherent as we're pulling these threads together to make this make sense? And so, what the cross, when you look at the cross, what's interesting. Is the cross doesn't necessarily tell you why it is, but it definitely tells you why it is not. The cross doesn't necessarily tell you why God allows evil and suffering, but it definitely tells you why, why he, what, what, what it isn't. And it's not because he doesn't care. And it's not because he's distant. And it's not because he isn't there. And it's not because it's pregnant. It's not because he doesn't love you. Do you see that? It can't be that. It's not because he's remote. It's not because he's indifferent. It can't be that. See, what the Bible gives us is a greater answer than why. Oftentimes we think that if we can get the why answer, then somehow our pain will go away. But anybody... Anybody who has been through pain, anybody, even even extreme abuse, and maybe what we would call extreme traumatic experiences, even if you get your "why, you know you still need something greater. Yeah. Yeah. You still need something greater, right? Well, why did that man abuse me? And you find out, well, he abused you because he was abused. And so the abuser, the one that would, the abusee turned into the abuser. And and the reason that happened is because, well, that person was abused. Okay. Well, I mean, depending on where you are in your Christian walk, what that might do is help you with forgiveness. What that might do is maybe bring in some sort of understanding. Right? Maybe. But you know you need something more than that. We always think we need the why answered when actually we need something bigger. We need something greater. See, when it comes to evil and suffering, the more powerful question we need answered isn't why, but who? When it comes to evil and suffering, the more powerful question we need answered isn't why, but who? It isn't, God, why are you allowing this to happen? But God, who are you showing me that you are through this? And who are you helping me to become? Who are you wanting me to become? You see. There's an Eastern, uh, f- an Eastern folklore of this man who uh, owned a horse. And the horse ran away, and the neighbor came back and said, Oh, man, isn't that bad luck? Your your horse ran away. And the man says, Well, what do I know about these things? Like three days later, the horse came back, and when he came back, he came back with 20 wild horses. And the neighbor comes over and says, Wow, I guess that wasn't bad luck. That was actually good luck, because now you got 20 extra horses. The man says, What do I know about bad luck and good luck? I don't know. Well, then the man's young son went out there to... Trained one of the new wild horses, and uh, the horse kicked him in the leg and broke his leg. The neighbor came over and said, "Man, isn't that bad luck? That you know the horse ran away, came back with twenty wild horses. One of the new horses kicked your leg, son, and now your leg, son, is broken. He can't help you here on the farm." Man says, "What do I know about these things?" Well, then a, a, a gang came into town. Very violent gang, very aggressive, very popular and influential came. And they came looking for new recruits and young, able-bodied men. And when and they almost chose this son and they realized his leg was broken. And so they said, no, we can't use him. And they move on to the next house. The neighbor comes over and says, oh, look, actually it wasn't bad luck at all. It was good luck. The man says, well, I don't know. What do I know about good luck and bad luck? In, the, in just that small series of events, you can see that you don't know the outcome of why certain situations happen, even the most egregious situations. You might not be able to comprehend every reason for why something has happened. And you might say, well, listen, I can't think of a good reason that God would allow it. But just because you can't think of one doesn't mean there isn't one. Right? Right? Just because you don't have the mind of God doesn't mean there isn't a God. Just because you can't think of one doesn't mean there isn't one. In the book of Job, remember when Satan goes to God and they're having this talk and Satan says, "Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you know, that dude down there, Job, you know, he, he praises you, he worships you, all that stuff. He says, God, the only reason he does that is because the cost for serving you is low and the benefit is high. He says, because look how blessed his life is. He says, I guarantee you that when you start increasing the cost and the benefits seem to be lowered, that Job's going to turn on you. That, that, that's what he says. In other words, he's telling God, no, he doesn't love you. Not really. He loves what he's getting from you, but he doesn't love you for you. That's what Satan's telling God, right? Right? And I think Satan was putting his finger right in the problem. Have you ever had somebody that maybe was like, you know, coming up to you and being really friendly to you, and then they find out that you aren't going to give them what they wanted, and so then they back down? And now all of a sudden that friendship is no longer there, right? Right? Or or, or maybe a little higher up in business or in media or in the tech world or the art world. You meet somebody, and maybe you're a little farther down the road. You're a little higher up the ladder than they are, right? And so they're coming up to you, and they want to hang out. They want to be your friend. They want to get to know you. But when they find out that you're not going to open doors for them, then all of a sudden, oh, that friendship isn't really as strong. You know what I'm talking about? Right? You, You see what I'm saying? Oh, or maybe something a little serious, right? A guy comes along, very friendly, very firm, uh, affirming, really seems interested, and then when he finds out that you're not going to sleep with him, he's gone, right? Well, it's because he didn't love you for you, Come on. right? He, he was loving you. He was, he, he was befriending you. He was, he, 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 was, he was hanging around with you because of what he was hoping to get from you, right? And human beings were like this. And if you're ever the object of one of those situations, then you feel like, uh, like really the person um, has sort of depersonalized you, has sort of dehumanized you, right? But also when you treat somebody that way, because we do that as well, right? We'll be in a friendship, and as long as that friendship is, is cool, and, and, but the minute it becomes demanding or draining, we're like, bye, bye. Right? We're in a marriage and, marri- oh, this is great. And then when you find out that the spouse isn't giving you everything that you thought the spouse would, right? You come home and you've had a hard day and you're upset and you're frustrated. So you walk in and you expect him to just be gracious and kind and patient and, and sweet and loving and have everything done. And, and you find out that that's not happening. Then all of a sudden you're upset. Right? See, when you do that, then, then you become the exploiter. You now become the manipulator. You, you see, you become cynical. And what God is saying is saying, listen, people are like this. Uh, uh, Satan is telling God, people are like this. Satan is saying, saying, they don't really love each other. What they really want is they want to know what they can get out of each other. Can this person make me happy? Right? Yeah. That, that's what we ask. Right? It's that they, oh, they're not really loving you. They want to know, can you make them happy? And God, as soon as that doesn't happen, they're out. Because they don't love you for you. Did you see that? Now, listen, if you don't want to be that, if you don't want to be the manipulator, if you want to authentically love and authentically love God for who He is, then the only way that's going to happen, almost the only way that that's going to happen, is through suffering. Is through suffering. Wow. Well. Why does God allow evil and suffering? You know, what's interesting is that what the Bible gives us is the Bible gives us something greater than why. It gives us the fact that we can trust Him. Because, you know, you hear people say, well, listen, it, 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 I could handle suffering if God would just show me exactly why. If he could just come by and say, oh, you're suffering now and this is terrible. But five years from now, this is what's going to happen. But 10 years from now, this is who you're going to meet because of it. Or this is how, this is what's going to happen. You're going to help transform someone else's life. Like, oh, uh, God could just show me these things that maybe I can understand and and, and I'll be able to handle it better. In other words, you're asking God, what am I going to get out of this? That's That's what you're asking. But if you're going to love somebody for who they are, then it can't be, well, what am I going to get out of it? That's selfish. And true love is selfless, you see. And the reality is, is that God himself entered into suffering. And because he entered into suffering, then what that at least tells us is there's a reason behind it. There's a good reason. That's at least what it tells us. Is that there's a good reason? Because he entered in, which makes him different than any other world religion, any other worldview. You see. So, what we need is we don't just need a worldview that um, denies the reality of evil and suffering. Right? We don't need that. That's almost impossible. But nor do we need a philosophy that only speaks to the logical and rational side, which is what we've been doing so far. But what we need is a way to deal with it. We say, okay, well, how do I still deal with the pain? You've laid out a case philosophically, logically, but how. How do we navigate then through the realities of evil? How do we deal with evil and suffering? And what our text this morning, Peter, shows us is really he shows us sort of three ways of being able to deal with it. And the first way is this. He says, you have to look back. You have to look back. For those of you who are in this room, which I'm assuming this would be all of you, but for those of you who are in this room that either see evil and suffering, are experiencing evil and suffering, or have experienced evil and suffering, the first thing that Peter tells us to do is to look back, right? Notice how Peter likens uh, this evil and suffering as, as going through fire, Notice that it's a, like, like he likens it to a furnace where you will be like gold that is being purified. It's a very powerful illustration. It's a powerful image, this fiery furnace that you kind of put metal through. And it's a wonderful metaphor, and you can get a lot out of it. But one time, that actually happened. Remember that? In Daniel chapter 3, you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what happened? You know, they go and they refuse to bow. And so the king says, listen, you didn't bow down to my my graven image that I put up. Then then I'm going to throw you into this furnace. And he has the furnace lit so high that even the guards that threw these teenage boys in died. The guards died. That's how hot it was just from throwing them in there. Right? Right? And then King Nebuchadnezzar is just, you know, kind of, I mean, the, the, the teenage boy should have been evaporated, right? And, 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 but, but he looks and he says, what's going on? There's, didn't we just thought there's three people there, but actually I see a fourth person. We threw pe- three people, right guys? Threw, th- we threw three or we do four? Three? Can you confirm three? Yeah, three. Yeah, three. Why is there a fourth person? Not only are these three people walking around, but why is there a fourth person? And this fourth person looks like a son of God. Remember that? And of course you know that the three teenage boys came out of the fiery furnace. Not only did they come out, but they didn't even smell like smoke. Their their, their clothes weren't burnt at all. But notice only three came out. One stayed in. You see, this is what's really interesting. Only in Christianity, of all the world religions or all the other views, says that Jesus Christ, God, became vulnerable and subject to suffering and pain, even unto death. Do you see that? And it, if you've, and this is so crazy. When you look at, at, at what God has gone through, then this is if you've lost a loved one, to your astonishment, when you look at the cross, you see the father losing a son. Or maybe you're screaming out in pain and you don't understand why this is happening. You look at the cross and you hear Jesus saying, why God, why? Right? Jesus Christ suffered. But he didn't just suffer what you and I would suffer on the cross. He he suffered way beyond physical, emotional, or mental. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ did not just experience a a physical torment, but but he was being cast out of the presence of God. See, if you and I were to die on the cross, God's presence would still be there with us. When he hung on the cross, when the Canaan king hung on Calvary on the hill of Golgotha, it was not with the presence of God. You see, what he experienced was far worse because what he was doing was he was taking on cosmically. He was taking on absolute, utter, and infinite suffering. He wasn't taking on just 20 years of suffering, 30 years of suffering, 1,000 years of suffering. He was taking on in this moment of infinite suffering And because he came and plunged himself, not just into the fiery furnace of our suffering, but into the infinite degrees beyond anything we will ever suffer, then we know we can trust. See, he loves us that much that he's willing to come and be plunged into our suffering and experience it. So someday he could end all evil without ending us. So he could end all evil without ending us. I was, uh, uh, my daughter Eden, who is uh, in third grade, right, babe? Third grade. (laughs) 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 She was asking, she was asking, I don't know, this was probably a month ago, and she was asking the question about why why evil exists and, and why, you know, why God isn't doing something about it. And at that age, I was trying to give her an illustration that I hope would help her make sense. And I said, listen, think of a, a baseball bat. When you think of a baseball bat, what do you think of? And she says, well, playing baseball, you know, and having fun. And you're out there and you're playing the sport and you're around family and you're around friends. And it's a great time. And you think of the food, you know, I think of the food all the time, right? Go to Giant Stadium and you get the lobster roll, praise the Lord. You know, <laughs> that's what I get anyway, I not know. Um, and I said, um, that baseball bat has the potential to bring joy and happiness. And and I said, but, but the baseball bat also has the potential to bring pain, destruction. And I said, why don't you do this? I said, why don't you take the baseball bat and make it to where it can only produce good, but it can't produce pain. Well, the only way to do that is to completely get rid of the baseball bat, to utterly destroy it. The question is, how does God end evil without ending us? So if you want to deal with evil and suffering, the first thing you have to do as you're dealing with it is look back and realize that it's not just you who are suffering, but you have a Savior that entered into suffering. He didn't just cross his arms and say, let's see how they're doing going to handle this. Right? He didn't make the world and then says, Okay, now I'm on to some other new universe. Right? And I've just forgotten about you or, or I don't care. Oh, I'm indifferent, whatever they're going on. You know, it's not like the movie Hercules and you know, Zeus and all them are just up there having a great time, they're like, oh I guess, you know, meddle with the humans a little bit. You have to look back to something, what he did on the cross. Then Peter tells us to look ahead. Look back and then look ahead. At the very top of the passage, remember Peter is talking to people who are suffering, and who are going to suffer more, right? And he says, listen, you're, you're going to go through a furnace, but he says, but what you need in order to go through this furnace is hope, a living hope, hope of a future, you see, 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Behold, the trumpet shall sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For when the perishable has been clothed clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written shall come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Look at that word, swallowed up. Has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. That is what is ahead. That's what ahead is. What is what is ahead? The, the swallowing up in victory. The swallowing up in victory. It, 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 it's this. It's God is saying, uh, uh, "Listen, um, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, which He did, then we'll rise from the dead, which we will." Right then what that means is there's not just restoration, but as we've been learning, there's consummation. In other words, God just isn't coming and restoring everything and giving you, uh, and, and the new heaven and the new earth won't just be this heaven and, and this earth restored, but it'll be uh, uh, vastly better and vastly greater, and it'll be swallowed up by victory. What does that mean? One... One commentator put it this way. He said that how he had a dream. And in his dream, uh, it was a horrible, vivid dream. Uh, and, and in his dream, his children were, were murdered. He, he lost them all. And it was, a, it was a gruesome murder that took place. And in fact, the dream was so vivid that it, it woke him up. It woke him up. And he, and he woke up screaming because of it. And, and he jumped out of bed. And, and he went and checked in the rooms. And he saw his kids were there. And he saw that they were fine. And... The fact that he saw that they were fine swallowed up the fear of losing them. You see, having gotten them back as it were because the dream was so real. It's like he really did lose them. And so getting them back after losing them and and realizing, oh, wait a minute, I didn't really lose them. Here they are, you see. And and that's just it. When when, when we're in Christ, we we don't really lose. What it is is we get it all back, you see. But better and, and greater. It's swallowed up. So you have to look back and you have to look ahead. And then the last one, then we'll let you go. Is you have to look in. You have to look in. It's really interesting. Verse 12 is astounding, right? Because it says this. It says, watch this. It says, uh, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that had now been told to you by those who preached the gospel Uh, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And even angels long to look into this. Even angels long to look into this. That word there means means to uh, strongly desire, to lust, actually. To look into what? What are they looking into? They're looking into you. And how God pours his grace on you and forgives you. And how your relationship with him can be restored, you see. See, it's interesting because when we talk about evil and suffering, what we're really asking is, what about, we're really asking about all the evil and suffering that's out there, right? Isn't that what we're asking? We're saying, God, why don't you get rid of all the evil and suffering? We're not really talking about the evil and suffering that's in here. In the movie Silence of the Lambs, Jodie Foster is, uh, plays a char- character called Clarice, who is this FBI, and she's training, and she's trying to catch a serial killer called Buffalo Bill. And so she goes and she interviews um, this imprisoned doctor named Hannibal Lecter. Who is a brilliant, brilliant uh, 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 thinker, but he's also a cannibal serial killer. And she says, "Listen, what's happened to you?" She said, "Something must have made you like this." Remember that part of the movie? She says, "Something must have twisted you and made you like this." And you know what he says to her? He says, "Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling." He said, "I just happened." He says, you can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. He says, you've got everybody in moral dignity pants and nothing is anybody else's, is ever anyone's fault. He says, look at me. Can you stand to be able to say, I am evil? See, we don't want to say that, do we? But that's the question. How could God allow me to happen? The question is how does God get rid of evil without getting rid of me? And the answer is the gospel. As we close, the answer is the gospel. See, this is what the angels are always looking into. Is the gospel. They're looking at the gospel, and they're looking at you, and they're looking at God, and they're looking at, at, at who you are, and they're looking at who he is, and, 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 and they're not asking, well, well, how is it that, 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 that people are getting into hell to them? That, that makes sense. What they're asking is, how are people getting into heaven? They're confused by it. They don't understand that they're constantly looking into it and not just looking but longing into it. They they, they have this deep sense of of longing and, and wanting to understand what the gospel is. Because the more you see how he loved you and the more you look into what Jesus did, and you, the more you look that into, into everything that God created, everything that was created by God, out of all of those creatures, out of everything, that he's, out of all species that he created, it was you, for you, that he died. It was for you that he entered into suffering. I don't know what your furnace of affliction is. But what you have to do is you have to say, is there any evidence in the universe that there is a God that can be trusted with evil and suffering and at the heart of christianity there's a cross and whatever that tells you is that god has not remained distant from suffering but he's become a part of it and and if that were the end of the story then we'd be lost but that's not the end of the story because the central evidence for christianity the evidence for christianity is the resurrection of jesus christ And the resurrection of Jesus Christ opens up the huge reality that ultimately justice will be done. And when we talk about evil and suffering, that's really what we're talking about. Where is justice? And in any other worldview, you will never get it. It will never happen, ever. You have to give up the reality of justice happening. takes the thread of life and creates a tap- tapestry that we won't comprehend until we see him face to face. Right? What we can know is that he has not remained distant, but he has plunged into it. And because of that we can trust him. Would you stand to your feet? My knowledge of, lo- of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim but it's enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. My knowledge of life is small. The eye of faith is dim, but it's enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. Lord God, I just pray that as we, uh, as we leave, Heavenly Father, that we know that maybe even today, Father, we will face the fiery furnace. That we will continue to face evil and and suffering. And I pray that as we navigate through that, Holy Spirit, you will help us to look back, to look ahead and to look in. I thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. And I I pray, Lord Jesus, that something, just one thing today uh, helped someone that maybe is really struggling with comprehending your existence existence of evil.
0: Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's Word and live for Him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. Visit us at inspiredchurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.